John is just on fire with his story. John just cannot believe how fantastic is the good news. He was 80 years old and he still wants to grab you by the lapel and say, look at this, this is astounding. He grew up a Buddhist and he was converted by the experience of reading John's gospel. It absolutely overwhelmed him. You know, a Buddhist more or less, and he finished the night a Christian. Well, welcome to the Ask Podcast again, and we're back with uh, Greg Sheridan this week after our wee excursion last week, and we're back with the wonderful book, Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World, and Greg, we're going to come straight to the Gospel of John because your third chapter is the Jesus you meet in John and the Jesus Kanishka met there. Well, we'll come to Kanishka in a moment. Sounds like a Hindu god, but we'll we'll we'll, we'll get there. But let, let's stick with John because um, why did you choose that Gospel out of all four of them to comment on? Well, David, uh, so all four of the Gospels have their own appeal. I, I I've said to you before, I think my favourite gospel overall is Luke, has the most women, it's the it's the warmest. Uh, you appreciate in Mark the stark, savage account of the crucifixion, which is so visceral and immediate. But I do think um, one of the great things about the New Testament is the different human voices you meet there. And mm-hmm. John's voice is absolutely distinctive. There's no other voice quite like it, I think, in literature. And uh, uh, the beginning of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and so on, mm-hmm. is the most majestic, sweeping declaration. And uh, John, if you both his Gospel and his letters, seems to me that his tone of voice is that of a Christian who has never lost his sense of wonder mm-hmm. and just the astonishing thing that Jesus Christ uh, is, um, I don't mean to use the word thing disrespectfully there, but the astonishing phenomenon of God become man. And John is so grateful for the friendship of Jesus and just so overwhelmed by how astounding it is. It's as if he, he wants to grab you. And people say that he was quite old when he wrote the gospel. That's the tradition. That's the scholarly consensus. But it's as if maybe he was 80 years old and he still wants to grab you by the lapel and say, look at this. This is astounding. And then, of course, all the way through the gospel, you get this very uh, elevated, magnificent view of the true nature of, uh, of Jesus Christ. You know, what, what you scholars call the Christology, the high Christology of, uh, of John, very explicit about uh, Jesus as the, the Redeemer, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And uh, I think it is, a, um, it is a breathtaking gospel to read. And I also think John's letters are... Uh, are also magnificent to read. They are. You know, uh, you, you cite Tom Holland saying there's nothing like it in the ancient Greeks and Persians, and of course he would know that. But, I, you know, my favourite argument that I always use against people is people who, who go, oh, why would you follow a 2,000-year-old book that's written by illiterate desert shepherds, apart from the, the, the logical point of pointing out that illiterate people don't write? I just go, John <laughs> chapter 1. Go to John chapter 1. Yeah, and, and yeah. you know, you know, no matter what the truth of it, it's one of the most extraordinary pieces of writing ever. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he, he brings it down to earth, yet this most magnificent, I mean, Professor John Lennox of the University of Oxford, he and I once did a, a, a talk on this in public where we just talked with one another. And 
you know, we've read it many, many times and it is so amazing. Um, you, you cite another of my favorites, my favorite Pope. I do have a favorite Pope, Pope Benedict um, the 16th uh, in, in his Jesus of Nazareth. Why did you cite him? What, what struck you about what he was saying? Well, I uh, agree with you about Benedict. I think he's the greatest uh, intellectual and the best teacher we've had as Pope for a long, long time. My own favourite Pope is John Paul II. I think, uh, you know, it, you could sit on the sidelines and say, yeah, go, fellas. You know, you felt like your favourite football team was winning 20 points to zero uh, when John mm -hmm. Paul II was on the field. Benedict didn't have uh, JP2's charisma and personality. You know, JP2 had stared down the Nazis and then he stared down the communists and he broke up the Soviet Union and so on. But Benedict is a magnificent intellectual and writer and wonderfully funny. That ridiculous movie, The Two Popes, mm -hmm. the stupidest thing in it is to suggest that Benedict doesn't have a sense of humour, whereas everything Benedict writes is screamingly funny. You know, he says he, you'll be able to recognise the Antichrist when he comes because he'll emerge from a German university with a higher degree in biblical studies, having just mm -hmm. written a, a path-breaking treatment of the Gospels or something. But... Um, Benedict uh, writes, I think, beautifully in his Jesus of Nazareth about Jesus generally, mm -hmm. but also he, he makes the point that the Gospel of John is not a Jesus poem, it's a Jesus memory, mm -hmm. written with a very high poetic sensibility. But uh, this is a Gospel, I agree with the scholars, or I agree with the Gospel, that it was written by John. It says it was written by John. Oddly enough, I don't think it's telling me a lie. I believe it was written by John. Mm -hmm. And the um, Benedict appreciates both the theological significance of it and also the human poetry of it. And all the way through, the, the astonishing mystery of the Gospel mm -hmm. is this combination of the human and the divine in the person of Jesus and indeed in the Gospels themselves. Well, John's gospel was written that we may believe, and I think you get a, a, a portrait of Christ, which is really quite astonishing. Now, on page 83, um, you talk about the impact that Christianity had in the ancient world. And I was struck by this. You, you're, you mentioned Rodney Stark's triumph of Christianity. But then you say this. Christianity forbade the killing of girl babies, a practice that was common because they were seen as not as useful to a family as boys. It instituted marriage as a consensual relationship of mutual love. It imposed some limits on sexual behavior by rapacious men. Now, I find that very interesting because there is an argument that is used that said until, you know, the Christians came along, especially Paul and Augustine, everyone was living in, in you know, sexual liberty and freedom and we need to return to those days. What you're basically stating here is actually it wasn't like that. And Christianity was actually liberating in particular, particular for women. It, 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 is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely, David. So um, the ancient world was, was, was not um, an idyllic prelapsarian, uh, you know, pre-Savonarola mm -hmm. um, uh, Garden of Eden. It was a savage world. It was a terrible world. It was red in tooth and claw. Um, it was a world mediated entirely by power and it and savagery. So it, it was built on the basis of hierarchy and inequality. Men were superior to women. Firstborn was superior to, to later born. Property holders were superior to non-property holders. Citizens were superior to foreigners. Men owned their families. 
they essentially owned their families. The Old Testament, in a sense, is a is a long, magnificent polemic against human sacrifice, mm -hmm. saying that, you know, your children actually don't belong to you. Mm -hmm. You can't uh, uh, do what you like with them. And Christianity certainly provided the best deal for women and girls, which the human race had ever known. Mm -hmm. Now, one fascinating thing I came upon recently, the recently um, deceased Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, whose works I'm sure you're very familiar with, I, I mm -hmm. read an essay of his recently arguing that what we're doing today really is creating a neo-pagan world. We're, we're going back to the paganism of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And this, this was a terrible dispensation for women and girls because men, you know, who are physically stronger than women, that's, that's just the truth, felt no moral constraint on their behaviour. They're only constrained by power. So the pagan world was a terrible world for women without a male champion. So mm -hmm. typically the childless widow was the most vulnerable and most marginalised person in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. But slaves were tremendously vulnerable too. The master could do anything he liked to any slave that he owned. And when Christianity came along, it imposed a moral limitation mm -hmm. on the master's behaviour towards his slaves. Mm -hmm. And uh, it liberated women from the tyranny of husbands and fathers because they were equal to men in their basic relationship, which is their relationship to God. Mm -hmm. There was an authority above the family authority, and that was the authority uh, of God. And of course, just not murdering uh, female babies. I mean, there's a lot of sociological research. It was extremely rare for an ancient Roman family to have more than one daughter. Mm -hmm. So if they didn't kill all their girl babies, they might let one live, but very rare to let more than one live. So Christian families didn't kill their, their baby daughters, so they were much happier. I mean, imagine how horrible the world would be that only had blokes. You know, imagine <laughs> if you went to your last Scottish extended family and there was nothing there but blokes. I mean, it would be ghastly beyond imagining. So well, I do think that yeah. uh, Christianity was a great liberation for women and girls. Yeah, it's interesting that, um, you know, I'm, I don't want to get off subject, but in, in terms of selective abortion, one of the great problems is, uh, as, as occurred in China and in India, the imbalance between male and female, even when it's slightly out of kilt, it really causes a huge lot of harm. Um, let, let's come on to this, uh, another thing that you pick up on that I was absolutely fascinated on. When you, you talk about the love of God, but you talk about the goodness of God. Now, a lot of Christians forget this aspect because there's this kind of view of, well, is God really good? And you, you state on page 86, God is not just good, God is goodness itself. Every emanation of goodness in the universe reflects God and is some way sustained by God. Therefore, to love God is to love goodness. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus identifies God with goodness. Again, I, I just simply ask you, uh, that's spot on. I mean, how did you pick up on that, though? Just reading it. Well, I think that's a central part of Christian teaching, really, mm -hmm. uh, David. And uh, when you consider, you know, what what is God or who is God? Yeah, I'm sure you did too. As kids, we'd play these little games and we'd say, ah, I've found something God can't do. He can't make something so heavy that he can't lift it himself. Mm -hmm. And what we were, you know, getting at in our childish way was the principle of contradiction. That is to say, God can't contradict himself. God mm -hmm. is always good. So God 
can't do anything bad mm-hmm. uh, because it's against uh, it's against his nature. That's a very clumsy way of, of expressing it. But it also uh, it answers the new atheist's challenge that God is a jealous God. Why does God demand that we love God? Well, God is demanding that we love goodness, that mm-hmm. we love love. Uh, and Jesus' life personifies uh, the personality of God. So we learn about the personality of God through the personality of Jesus, which is one of selfless love. And um, Jesus underwent the suffering of the crucifixion, the death and crucifixion, entirely out of love for the human race. And that is the nature of God. I mean, again, with it, without wishing to get off subject, David, one of the weirdest arguments of the new atheists seem to be, to me, look, the universe took 14 billion years to evolve. Therefore, obviously, God wouldn't waste his time doing that. If we're the object of the universe, if human beings are the object of the universe, obviously, God wouldn't wait. Now, first of all, you might say, well, how on earth would the new atheists know what God would do or wouldn't do? But it actually strikes me as absolutely characteristic of God that he would spend 14 billion years preparing this beautiful garden just for us. Mm-hmm. There's never been any evidence of time travel or, you know, contact from anybody else in the universe. It may be that it is all just for us. Mm-hmm. That's a magnificent gift. Mm-hmm. What a splendid gift it is, you know. And uh, I have always agreed with the, with the American television Christian Fred Rogers. The first prayer for any Christian really is just thank you, God. Well, that, that's the idea of, of gratitude. And the, the idea of goodness as well is, Jesus at one point says, why do you call me good? There's no one good except God alone. And he's referring to that in the ultimate sense, because, Greg, you know, I might refer to you, oh, Greg Sheridan's a good guy, right? But actually, in... in, in, in Overing with the truth there. But, you know, but in, in Scottish terms, you know what it's like? Uh, uh, Australians do this as well. We slag people off if we really, really like them. Sure. But, you know, actually, when someone says you're a good guy, you say, yeah, sure, that's what you see of me, but actually... That goodness is mixed in with, you know, the the heart of darkness as as well, and and you know the the, the dividing line between good and evil, as Solzhenitsyn says, you know, going through the middle of every human heart. But the absolute goodness is in God, and I think that also ties in. We were talking about sex abuse scandals and other things that, you know, God does not do anything evil and does not command His people to do what is evil. You know, and there's a whole argument that we can get in there about the difference between good and evil. But also back to the new atheists, of course, Richard Dawkins says in the universe, there is no good and evil, which is is, it's it's a fascinatingly miserable world to live in, you know, because most people know there is. It's dark. It's dark. Yeah, it's a bleak and terrible world. I was astonished. I know we we might have discussed this before, David, but Mm -hmm. when I went through the exercise of reading the new atheists, um, I was astonished just at how feeble and miserable and weak mm-hmm. their arguments were. Mm-hmm. I expected to be seriously challenged and a bit disturbed or, or you know, at mm-hmm. least to have to work hard to to answer this stuff. And it was just such ridiculous junk. So Dawkins at one point says, well, of course, without God, there is no absolute distinction between good and evil. There is really no objective difference between good and evil, but we should just all do our best or something. So he he concedes straight away 
that if you're if there is no God and your vision is that you'd like to murder 600 people or something, well, your vision is just as good as anybody else's vision. Uh, there's nothing that mediates that except brute power. And um, the human instinct has always been that that's not true, that goodness and evil exist in a sense, in a true objective way beyond our perceptions of them mm-hmm. and that the goodness exists beyond just us. And uh, I think the human perception has been right. And of course, it's then fulfilled in the Gospels. We understand it because of the Gospels and the letters in the New Testament. We understand the source of goodness and we can see what a good human life looks like. I mean, one of the reasons Jesus uh, uh, lived as a human being was to show us what a perfect life looks like. Let me come on to something else, which was, again, intrigued me. Uh, And I hadn't really thought of it like this, but it kind of makes sense. But you picked this up as a journalist. So, I mean, in your career, you'll have had points where you, 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 you realise you've got a story. You're actually going to break a story that nobody else knows. And you're quite excited about it. You really want to tell people. And you bring this up about John, that he comes across, particularly in the, in the letters, but he comes across as someone who says, I've just got this great story to tell you, that he's dying to tell the news. Um, do you want to say anything more about that? Absolutely. So I I found it as a journalist very uh, sympathetic and very rewarding to read the New Testament as a journalist. So um, I absolutely agree with the Christian practice of meditating on particular verses and so forth. But but reading each book all the way through um, in as close to one sitting, I mean, some of the books you can't do in one sitting, but in a few sittings, reading them for narrative and meaning and uh, character and incident. And, um, you know, there are parts of Paul that are meditative, parts that are cranky, parts that are urgent, you know, parts that are very loving. But John is just on fire with his story. Mm -hmm. John just cannot believe how fantastic is the good news, which he is, uh, he is, you know, mandated to share. He's been told to go out and share this good news. And he, of course, had the tremendous benefit of being, uh, a disciple of Jesus when Jesus was uh, conducting his public ministry and of being a good, a close friend of Jesus. As far as we can tell, he was maybe Jesus' best friend. And uh, and it seems that all through his life, he never lost the sort of passionate wonder of this. And he just is so thrilled with the story. And this is indeed the way a journalist feels. When a journalist has a good story, you know, they say it's in their pocket and it's burning a hole in their pocket. They just got to get it out there and they want to get it out there as soon as they can. So typically the next day's newspaper, sometimes with digital news, it's a bit different now. And you're absolutely sweating that somebody else is going to get it before you. Well, I don't think John would have minded if other people knew the story as well. But you just want to shout out to everybody, look at this. This is really important. And journalists become very obsessive about their stories. I mean, I write a great deal about submarines. My wife never wants to hear the word submarine ever again. But for me, submarines are an object of wonder and, and joy and, and uh, fulfilment, you know. And John, a bit of a higher plane than me, he felt this feeling about Jesus only a thousand times over. And this tone, this tone of voice comes through. So you could never mistake John's tone of voice for Paul's tone of voice. You could never mistake John or Paul for Peter, the, 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 or you couldn't mistake any of them for Luke. They have very distinctive tones. And I'm astonished at this in a way 
because it's come to us across 2,000 years, across vast cultural differences. It's come uh, from Greek into English, and yet still it's all there, as long as you've got any kind of decent translation. And, and most of the main translations, I think, are very good. Yeah. Do you know, um, the nickname, I, I mean, I think that's spot on, the, the nickname of John and James were sons of Boanerges, sons of thunder, because they were so passionate. And sometimes that passion was, was in a bad way. But, um, do you know, it, as he got on, there's a story told of John that he was meant to be living in uh, uh, Ephesus, if he, Ephesus with I think Jesus' mother, Mary, that was the point. And he went into a bathhouse mm. as the, and there was a heretic there. <laughs> and it said that John just got up and, w and walked out and said, I, I can't be in the presence of such evil or something, you know. And that, that he, you're never going to be in any doubt about what John thinks. And this, but for me, there's just this well, warm, warm enthusiasm that a lot of Christians could learn from, to be honest. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Now, without being remotely theological, theologically controversial here. I think we discussed when discussing the crucifixion. I myself was was very affected by the the last words of Jesus to his disciples where he says to to Mary, woman, this is your son, and he says to John, this is your mother. And from that day forward, Mary went to the household of John. Now, I, I offer this entirely as speculation, nothing more than... We journalists, you know, we're not bishops or theologians or anything, so it doesn't really matter if we get stuff wrong. But I wonder, too, if John's um, understanding of Jesus came, obviously, from being his disciple and being his friend and everything. But presumably, if he and Mary were roommates or, you know, if she was his lodger for a number of years or something like that, they would have prayed together. They mm -hmm. would have talked. I mean, the early Christians did not live by entirely by diaphanous vision. You know, they had all the practicalities to attend to. They had to have enough money to help the poor and to feed themselves and all the rest of it. They had to avoid being persecuted. And the legend, the church tradition is that John is the only one of the apostles who didn't suffer martyrdom and the, the apostles weren't looking for martyrdom. Uh, but I wonder too, if that's another element of the, of the warmth and the beauty in John. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. And th there's that, there's this very human character, this very natural enthusiasm the fact, incidentally, for me, that he, he, he didn't kind of, he wasn't ethereal. He's talking about someone who he believed was still alive. You know, it's one of the evidence for the resurrection, actually, I think, very much so. But you've also, you've got this lovely phrase in, uh, on page 91. And by the way, for someone who's not a theologian, you're, you're, you're not, you're not bad. <laughs> that's, that's high praise, um, from a Scotsman. You know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'd like to try my hand at journalism sometime, but you, you could you could do all right with a the theology. So you've got this. The simple truth is that Gospels themselves are the truth and contain everything we need to know about Jesus. Yet Jesus, the center of Christianity, is infinitely more than the Gospels contain. You have connected there the relationship between the word, as in scriptures, and the word, as in John says at the beginning, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. You've connected that beautifully because the scriptures contain everything we need to know about Jesus, but they are not everything about Jesus. And John himself, of course, says that. Do you want to comment on that? Well, I was struck by John saying something like, if, if we wrote down everything about Jesus, it would take all the, books. All the paper yeah. and all the books and all the pens in the world or something like this. And uh, that's, again, the, the sense of bounty that John feels. But um, 
A couple of thoughts I have on that, David. One is that the tone of voice in John is very different from the tone of voice in Matthew, Mark and Luke. But there's nothing at all in John which contradicts Matthew, Mark and Luke. The, the identity of Jesus as the Son of God and the Saviour of mankind and so on is, is more unmistakable and explicit in John. It's there certainly in the other Gospels, there's no doubt about that, but, but it's more developed in John. Then you think, you know, the, the John Dawkins, uh, the Richard Dawkins type of critic of Christianity will say, well, the story is told in one gospel and it's slightly different from the way it's told in the, in the other gospel. And of course, you think, well, Jesus had years of public ministry. He probably, like all teachers, had stock stories that he told over and over again to people. So even the difference, I mean, partly it's the interpretation of the writer of the gospel. But also it may be that Jesus told roughly the same parable 28 times with slight, uh, slight differences. So the, the gospel writers may have been extremely conscientious about getting exactly the words Jesus spoke and still give you what seemed to be different versions. Um, I don't know if you've uh, seen that series, The Chosen, uh, which, is, um, which has been produced independently about, uh, about Jesus and his first followers. It creates a backstory for the disciples, but it does so very sympathetically to the gospel. Well, it doesn't make any claim for truth of the backstory, but of course, Peter and James and everybody, they had lives uh, before, they, before they met Jesus. Jesus presumably said a lot more than the words that are recorded in the gospel. And of course, Jesus is an active element in history all the time and in every human heart all the time. So Jesus is much bigger than just the Gospels, but certainly the Gospels are true and contain everything we need to know about Jesus. Like everything in Christianity, it's a paradox and it's a little bit of a mystery. Yeah, but you, you see, this is why I'm saying you're a good th theologian, because you're following in the footsteps of Paul, who we'll come up to in another discussion, because Paul in Ephesians, in Romans, in Colossians, he talks about knowing the mystery that is Christ and knowing the mystery of God, which is Christ. And in, he says in God, you know, in Christ are hidden all the mysteries of God. So you, you've, you, you know, you've hit that on the nail. There's, there's a beautiful simplicity and yet there's just an incredible depth. And, and we're coming back again to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Greg, our, our time is going fairly quickly. So I want to come on to Kanishka. Um, now, for those who don't know, Kanishka Raphael, I hope I pronounced that right. Have I pronounced that right? Oh, so anyway, I don't know. <laughs> um, he is now the Archbishop of Sydney, and you obviously interviewed him. Um, I'm, I'm going to say to people, get the book to to hear the story. But I just wanted to ask you about one thing. You say the thing I find most notable about, about Kanishka is the sense of sheer joy that he has in his Christian belief. Now, I have to say, when I first met Kanishka, and you know, I've got to know him a little bit. Um, I agree with you entirely. I, I think it's 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 infectious, actually, and it's it's real. Um, you know, there's just something. Again, we've used this word quite a lot in in this podcast. Something warm, isn't there? There's something reflective. I think of what John is talking about and of Christ. Is that a fair comment? Oh, I think so, David. So I don't want to embarrass the Archbishop, but I would say. So he was converted by reading John's Gospel, which is why I put the two of them together in the one chapel, in the one chapter. He was um, he he grew up a Buddhist, and he was converted mm. by the experience of reading John's Gospel. It absolutely overwhelmed him. 
couldn't sleep. He read it two and a half times in the same night. He started the night, uh, you know, a Buddhist more or less, and he finished the night a Christian. And um, and his encounter was with John's Gospel. Now, I don't want to embarrass the Archbishop, but it seems to me, I, I've got to know him a bit too, uh, his personal disposition is very similar to John's personal disposition. It seems to me he's constantly struck. I serve a great God. Isn't this fantastic? Boy, have you heard this story? Wow, let me tell you about this. And um, he is a very warm person. I, I got to know him, uh, if I could just digress for one second, because in the previous book, I interviewed um, Andrew Hasty, mm -hmm. the politician who had been an SAS soldier in Afghanistan. And one thing SAS soldiers do when they go on a combat deployment is write a letter to their wives and they also nominate who's going to take their funeral if they uh, if they should die in combat. And he asked that uh, Kanishka Raphael take this funeral and preach on Lazarus. Mm -hmm. And um, so poor old Kanishka, God bless him, if I could still use his Chris Christian name, I suppose I should call him His Grace or something, but um, he was reading my book as it happened and came upon himself in the book and thought, hello, I didn't know I was going to figure in this book. And then somehow or other... We got in touch with each other and so then i interviewed him for for this book christians with neither of us having the faintest idea that he was going to become uh, the anglican archbishop of sydney i think it's a wonderful choice by the diocese i think he's a truly gifted christian and while um while i think he's a uniquely gifted individual it's also this observation i'd make to you david people who convert to christianity in adulthood often maintain the sense of wonder. I mean, you do find cradle Christians who have this wonderful sense of wonder of Christianity as well. But I've known quite a few people who have converted to Christianity in adulthood. And it's a really radical leap to take. And they kind of, very often in my experience, never lose that sense of, isn't this fantastic? And, you know, everybody's different. Not everybody has the gifts of Kanishka's personality or anything like that. But it's, it strikes me that's a, an attitude which to some extent all Christians might share. You know, aren't we fortunate to be the beneficiaries of this fabulous good news? Yeah, I think, you know, that aspect of joy. It's interesting because, you know, we mentioned the New Atheist quite a lot and we've gone through a whole podcast without mentioning Chesterton, who is quite a joyful person, <laughs> quite a jolly person. Um, but I, you know, Christopher Hitchens' God is not great. Uh, Dennis Gisauser wrote a response, Why Christianity is Great. And I just thought, wrong title, wrong title. You know, because what makes Christians excited is Jesus Christ. We're, we don't, we, we love the church because it's the church of Jesus Christ and he loved the church. But we, 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 we don't get excited. Well, maybe we do. Maybe some people do get excited about their church building or their church organization. But in reality, the joy doesn't come from that. The joy comes from they're spin-offs. The joy comes from from Christ. And, you know, you convey that very, very well in the book. It, listen, it's been my privilege again to... David, can I add, can I add one more point sure. before we go? Yeah, absolutely. Specifically on that, I'm so overjoyed with what you said. But, you know, this book is published by Alan Unwin. They have been wonderful publishers, wonderful publishers. I, I don't know if any of them agree with a word of what I've written, but you couldn't get better publishers, more dedicated to making the book a success. They are fabulous. I can't say enough good for them. And the publisher who takes me under his wing, he came up with the title for this book, Christians. Then he came up with the subtitle. But his subtitle was The Urgent Case for Christianity in Our World. Mm -hmm. 
And my only contribution to the subtitle was to change that to the urgent case for Jesus in our world. And we undenied about this a great deal. And um, I didn't want to be, uh, you know, flip or disrespectful in using the Lord's name. But on the other hand, it's just what you were saying, that it's not uh, an, an ism or a, or, a, or a, you know, even a formal kind of religion or something that you're trying to communicate. It's the reality of Jesus Christ. And so we changed the subtitle from the urgent case for Christianity in our world to the urgent case for Jesus in our world. And I think that was um, that was much more you know what the mission of the book is trying to be rather than um, rather than a sort of a a, a term about Christianity. Uh, the previous book's subtitle had um, a defense of Christianity in troubled times, and uh, it just seemed right to um, to personalize it. So I'm so glad about what you were just saying there, David, that uh, you you read the mind of my secular uh, the dialogue that I had with my secular publisher on on this on this. One point. You'd be amazed what I know. <laughs> no, <laughs> I get it. sorry, that was terrible. Um, listen, I look. The the borders are now open, so I can come down to Melbourne sometime, and maybe we'll meet up and we'll 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 be do some of this. But look, in a fortnight's time, we're going to come back to Mary, uh, Greg Sheridan, once again. Thank you so much, and to all of you who've been listening or or even watching this, we pray the Lord's blessing upon you, and may you know this joy that Kanishka and John and 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 we know. Uh, God bless you. Bye.